The revolution is here. A movement of people free to live, work, and choose. We won't tell you what to think. We just demand that you think for yourself. This is Kibbe on Liberty. Jesse, how's it going? Not too bad. How are you doing, Matt? Good, good. Uh, we've been talking about doing having this conversation for a while now. Um, but before we do that, why don't, why don't you tell people a little bit about your background? You're with Americans for Prosperity, but, but you've been fighting the fight in local government in Missoula, Montana. Yeah, yeah. And thank you so much for having me on, Matt. I really appreciate the opportunity. So um, I actually grew up in a small rural town in Montana um, and served on the Missoula City Council, which is our second biggest town. Your viewers might know it as the location of Yellowstone, where, where that's filmed. Um, got elected at, when I was 26 years old back in 2018 and served all the way up until January of this year. Um, was a financial advisor for about eight years, and then when I got off city council, I still wanted to, to try and make a difference, so I joined with Americans for Prosperity um, back in February and mm -hmm. have been keeping up the fight for freedom and individual liberty. Why on earth would anyone run for public office at the local level? Yeah, so I, I ultimately decided to run for city council when I was 26 years old. Um, really didn't know what it was about. Didn't even know who the mayor was at the time, uh, like most of the town. We, we don't even know who our elected officials are at the local level. Um, but as a financial advisor, I was working with a lot of folks um, who were on a fixed income. They were retired, and uh, they'd owned their home outright. They'd done everything they were supposed to do. They paid off their home, um, but they still owed their rent to the government. Um, and at the local level, believe it or not, taxes typically go up every year. I mean, as much as we complain about the federal income tax, at least it doesn't go up every year. But at the local level typically goes up and up and up and up and never ever goes down and these folks that were my clients they were getting taxed out of their home they were people that had lived in their house since maybe the 70s 60s they'd raised their family there they had their grandkids there all these memories that they would built into this home but their social security checks their pensions weren't going up at the same rate their property taxes were and the government always had their rent as due uh, there was no no way of getting around it um, and they told me they said well Jesse you're 26 years old you're not married you don't have kids why don't you give it a shot um, so I decided to throw my hat in the ring and unfortunately I won that race um, and like I said I just completed my sentence um, uh, back in February so very nice to, to be free again but now I'm kind of in like a probationary phase with, yeah, yeah. with AFP where I, I want to, to keep the fight for liberty going. Well I mean you're a former politician so we, <laughs> we, we have some skepticism. Yes I'll, yes I'll as you should a healthy amount yeah, of skepticism. Yeah. Well, we, the, the conversation we were having that led to this show was, um, you know, you, you were kind of scolding me because I live in D.C. I focus, have always focused on trying to change the national landscape and, you know, starting with the presidency, but, you know, who controls Congress and, and issues like that. Um, and it was, I think it was uh, Mike Lee that points out that the, the more and more we fight about control in Washington, D.C., the more we're getting away from the American model, which is localism and, and federalism. And, and, and even myself as a libertarian, like we believe in communities cooperating and solving problems from the bottom up. So it, um, you're scolding me like you, you need to pay attention to local politics. You need to pay attention to um, a lot of, of the growth of, of these baby leviathans in, in communities because people don't pay attention to that stuff. And, and that's the downside, like they don't pay attention. But the upside is you can actually get elected to city council and you can do things. And, and 
Talk a little bit about, and this, this probably goes right into the, the job you're doing now, but, but talk some about, about the issues that, that mattered in Missoula that, that you think might basically apply to every community. Yeah, so there's there's a ton of different issues that, that happen at the local level that people don't really think happen at the local level because we've been so focused on the federal level and, and these top-down approaches, uh, even us as, as conservatives, that we don't realize that a lot of the liberty um, that, that has been stolen from us is actually happening right in your own backyard. And I think that COVID kind of really exemplified that and really put a spotlight on, on the, the powers that these local health departments have. Um, actually, uh, Americans for Prosperity worked on a bill to rein in executive powers um, at the local level. And believe it or not, before we'd done our, our bills, um, before COVID happened, the local health department in Montana had the authority to arrest the county sheriff. So the elected county sheriff could be arrested by the local health departments. Wow. It wow. was unbelievable what, what can happen. So it was like mini Fauci. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And all of the health department heads were like tiny little Fauci's going around. And and what's sad is that they were doing this before COVID. When, when if there was a health code violation, if it was somebody they didn't like, they had the power to shut down a business. COVID put the spotlight on that. Yeah. But ultimately, they always had the power and control over the businesses. Yeah. And that's a, like that was something that was shocking to me. And obviously, Washington, D.C. is not a small city. No. Um, but I was shocked at the um, blank check powers that our mayor had. To, to just have rolling emergency powers for almost two years. And, and we've talked about that on that show, but that happened everywhere. And I don't know exactly where those powers come from. And I, I don't believe that they're constitutional, but um, really the only way to, to, to deal with it is old, the old fashioned way people have to show up and people have to hold them accountable. Exactly. And, and the mayor in, in Missoula, him and I did not agree on a whole lot. But one thing we did agree on is is he would say all the time that, that he hears people complaining about the way that the city council does business, the way the mayor does business, the city policies. And then you look out into the audience and you see two or three people in council chambers and nobody's showing up until uh, they're commenting on Facebook, they're commenting on Twitter, they're doing this, that and the other thing. But they're they don't even know who their elected official is, let alone to show up to a city council meeting to voice their opinion. Yeah, um, but that that is tremendous opportunity because I don't imagine that many people show up, and and it's a great way to to push people in the right direction. I mean, government sometimes goes to those who show up. Correct. Um, and as we've talked about, conservatives have taken the fight more to the federal level, and, and we focused on these top, top-down top solutions. But while we've been doing that, the Democrats and the left have been focused on, on local issues since the early 1900s, and they have gotten control basically of every board, all these different advisory councils that the mayor has, school boards, everything that they have taken control over slowly and methodically over time, incrementally. Yeah, I was, I was thinking specifically about education and and it's another one of those issues where the, the mythology is because of the Department of Education and because the Biden administration talks so much about, about throwing more money at education, people forget that it is almost exclusively financed at the local level, controlled at the local level, and, and as we learned under lockdowns, really controlled by a fairly elite group of, of teachers, union officials that, that don't seem to give a damn about kids. Yeah, they, they do not, unfortunately, in, in large portions, uh, care about kids. And, and, and the whole incentive structure, unfortunately, is set up in a way 
that they can make a decision that's contrary to the customers, the customer in this case is being the taxpayers and the parents, and it doesn't affect their funding. It does not impact their funding. And there's a lot of teachers that are great teachers, but they're tied into to teaching standardized tests. They can't actually work with that child uh, to help them achieve their individual potential. They have to teach to a certain standard because their uh, funding is tied to that. So if their kids aren't scoring high on standardized tests, then ultimately they're not going to get that funding that they need. Yeah, it's it's really like the the union bosses. I think create create make it impossible for good teachers to teach and 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 maybe really push them out of the system because they can't they can't function. Yeah, that's a hundred percent correct. And and if a parent wants to take their kid out of uh, out of public school or homeschool their kid, the teachers don't care. The the school system doesn't care. The administrators don't care because the parents have no leverage in this situation. The leverage, of course, being money that they've paid through their property taxes, that their neighbors have paid through their property taxes. It goes to that school no matter what. So what, what happened in Missoula and, and Montana with school lockdowns? Because everybody's paying attention in New York City and the, the awful way that the mayor is handling the situation there. But, but that happened almost everywhere. Yeah, and people think of Montana as, as the wild, wild west, very conservative state, but but in reality, we're actually more of a purple state. Um, and even though we did have Republican control at, at all three branches of government, the local levels, the power at the local government, the local schools, still had masking policy up until three months ago, that the kids had mandatory masks, um, the, they weren't actually back in school until this last school year uh, full-time, they were doing kind of alternate days. And parents were showing up to those meetings, and they were getting ignored by their school board members because the school board members actually do have the power to control what happens in that local school system, almost exclusively without the governor or the mayor or anybody having any say over that. Yeah, they're, they're, to take it back to the federal level, of course, I can't help myself, but the, the, the travesty of, of parents showing up at school board meetings and being um, targeted by the Justice Department as... as oh, yeah. As I, I think they used the T word, didn't they? They, they? they were domestic terrorists. Domestic terrorists. Yeah. Yep. Concerned parents now now became the enemy of the state. Yeah. Yeah. So so what do you what do you do about that? So like you have and this this would apply to almost every local issue. You have these entrenched interests that that have in large been ignored by 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 liberty type people, who just sort of assume that at the local level people are doing their jobs. Um, how, how do you reform education at the local level? So there's a, a bunch of different ways that you can do it, um, and especially that all of those ways do not entail the federal government. Um, so right now, Americans for Prosperity, we're working on some true education reform at the state level because there are some ways that you can do it statewide and some ways that have to be done statewide uh, that can't actually be done at the local level. So trying to give parents and students more of an opportunity to learn in a way that best suits their needs. I mean, there are great public schools. There's no question about that. Um, unfortunately, most of those public schools are located in areas uh, that are very affluent. It's determined by your zip code. You can't, if, if you live on a poorer side of town and you want to get a better life for yourself, you want to go to a school that, that produces higher test scores on the other side of town, you can't do that at the local level right now. Um, you have to go to the school that's assigned to your district, and you have to just be happy and shut up if you don't like the education that, that's being handed down to you. So what we need to do is, is really encourage more competition, because right now the government has essentially a monopoly on, on 
on on education. Um, so what what we could do is look at setting up some sort of education savings account where the money actually follows the kid. We call it backpack funding. So what happens is in Missoula, it's about $13,000 a year. The, the public school system gets paid by the taxpayers to educate a student per year. And compare that with a private school in Missoula, which produces far more econ uh, economic um, opportunity for those students, a lot more educational opportunity, higher test scores. That's about $6,000 a year. So it's half as much, but twice the educational value. Yeah. Um, so what you can do is you can put that $13,000 a year, maybe $12,000, $11,000 of it, because unfortunately these schools have taken out a bunch of debt. And you have to always have enough in there to service the debt uh, to make sure that the investors get paid their money back. But at the end of the day, you can put that money in an education savings account, and then they can you the parents get to decide with their child what is the best education for them. If it's a public school, if it's home school, if it's charter school, if it's virtual school, they get to choose, and ultimately that'll make all education better. Because everybody says, oh, Jesse, that's going to defund public education. It actually won't. It will... It doesn't have to, I should say that. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't have to. The schools have the opportunity to improve their education, improve their curriculum, uh, to keep students in, just like businesses competing with one, e one another. There's no reason that um, somebody has to go to Walmart versus Target. Um, so those guys are always competing with better products, different prices, and able to keep themselves both afloat by making things better and cheaper. Yeah, it's about incentives. Like, who, exactly. who's your customer? Is your customer the union boss? Or is your customer um, the child and the parents, and and you'll, will you be ba judged based on their performance? Do they actually like the service you're providing? Uh, I know that's crazy talk <laughs> in our system. So well, one of the things that's that's frustrating that in, in on the one sense that the last two years, I think a lot of parents woke up to what's going on in in I, I call it government education. It's you know it's it, it's not a public system in the sense that that people are choosing to be there. It's a government system, and you you typically, most parents don't have a choice at all. Um, but there's still this kind of haves and have-nots. I think I think parents who could afford to and were watching the virtual schooling and looking at curriculums and, and just more broadly realizing that sending my child to this, this regimented system is, is not what I signed up for. Um, and then add masks and and you know maybe vaccine mandates on yeah. top of that, and it's insane. Um, so some moms can can afford to take on that t tremendously large responsibility of, of homeschooling or maybe creating a pod school. Um, is is that happening? Is that is it legal for parents to say, you know what, I don't want to I don't want to send my child to the the government school anymore? Yes, it is legal. Um, the, it, again, the, the only constriction is the means of the parent. So right. there are the haves and have-nots, as, as you've said, and if a parent is economically um, able to do that, then certainly that is the option that we've seen. But unfortunately, there's so many kids right now, and, and a lot of those folks that are disenfranchised at the economic level are also folks that, that need specialized learning, need yeah. different learning that, that fits their needs in a better sense. Yeah, and that's that's the the you know the dirty secret is for a lot of working parents, um, the, the system serves multiple functions. It's also a form of, of daycare. Yep. Um, so when they locked down the schools, they, they specifically screwed parents who couldn't afford it um, because they had no means of, of getting to work and they were stuck between a rock and a hard place. 
Um, that's outrageous, but that's like, that's the, the means of, of having a real grassroots revolution where parents finally um, have enough knowledge and have all the incentives to actually just transform the system in a way that would actually be great for kids. Yep, you're 100% correct that um, COVID has, has been kind of a great incubator, a, a great, I guess, a little bit of gasoline on a fire to get people really revved up to see what's actually happening with their kids. And it's also focused a spotlight not only on, obviously, the more egregious examples like vax mandates, um, mask mandates, shutting down the schools. It's also shined a spotlight on the fact that the United States educational system does not rank very highly in terms of the world. Yeah. We're about 36th, I think, in, in math, about 24th in science. So we're not focusing on the education that, that actually is going to help people become a productive member of society to achieve something that they actually enjoy and, and do something that makes them feel fulfilled in, in their life. We're focusing instead on these top-down mandates um, and actually a lot of indoctrination, a lot of propaganda at the local level, stuff that doesn't need to be taught in schools at all when people aren't even proficient in the whole existence, the reason for existence of schools, which is math, science, English, technology. You know, so when Milton Friedman first proposed the idea of education vouchers, um, and since that time, and that was what, I forget when that was, but the, the cost per child, the amount that the government puts in per child has about tripled, adjusted for inflation. And it's all overhead. It's all administrative. Yep. It's all bureaucracy. Uh, that money's not going to teachers. It's certainly not rewarding teachers who, who serve students. Um, but, you know, that also creates a political incentive to, to fight you guys tooth and nail if you try to fix it. Yep, 100%. And and you bring a good point about, about the teachers and, and the pay scale. Like people think that all that money is going to the teachers, but in reality it's going to the, the bureaucratic bloat. And then there's also the, the issue with tenure where you have teachers that maybe don't do a great job. I know where I'm from there were some, certainly teachers that didn't do a great job that were just kind of there for the paycheck. And then you had a teacher that was there uh, that was passionate, that stayed after school late, that was there in the summers, that was calling these kids at home. He got paid the same amount of money or less than the teacher that didn't do anything at all. Yeah. So there was no incentive really for the teachers to get better and improve their, their students' educational experience either because it's all one size fits all. It's all based on how long you've been there, not on the quality of, of education that you provide to your kids. Yeah. So we're, um, we don't have the details buttoned down, but we're talking about putting together a tour this summer in, in Montana um, featuring in part the, the documentary we made, Sick Year, that, and which is really, it's looking at the last two years through the eyes of, of four or five moms who really wanted the public system to work for their children. And they also just sort of took on the responsibility for themselves. And, you know, some homeschooled, but others created pods. And, and what, what I think about that documentary is that it empowers a lot of parents and, and usually moms, not always, that, you know, people that, are like, I, I could never do that. That's too overwhelming. It's it's too big of a responsibility. I have a job, all that stuff. So we're we're wanting to to turn on some parents to, to what they could do for themselves and also what they could do to rein in the the government overreach in, in their in their child's education. 
Yeah, and, and that tour that we're looking at in Montana is to do exactly what you said. We we want to show parents that have they have so much going on. I mean, especially in today's day and age with inflation the way it is, um, where typically both parents have to work. They don't have the time to, to research all this, let alone homeschool their kid. And they think that there's no other option. They think that they're stuck in this situation. There's nothing they can do to change it. But what your documentary did is, is show people that they're not alone. It's um, just a way of, and I think that that's a big step in the process, is just showing people that they're in this with, with a whole group of us, that we're going to have their back, we're going to help them. There's different ways. There's pod learning. There's private school. There's all these different options out there if we just have the will and the organization and the capacity to affect and impact change, which we can do, again, at the local and state level. We don't have to go and change the, the structure of the U.S. Senate. We don't have to worry about the filibuster. We don't have to worry about any of that stuff at the local level, though those are very important issues, we can get do it all as a community, as, as people, if we come together and fight for an equal cause, amazing things can happen. Yeah, and by the way, shout out to Logan Albright, who's in the audience today. He is the director of that film, and it's his, it's his passion project. Hey, Logan. Hello. <laughs> Wonderful film. Thank you. Um, so let's, um, let's, let's talk about some other issues, because the point you just made um, I, I think that's particularly true on, on another issue that's near and dear to both of us, uh, criminal justice reform and, and police reform and, and all of this stuff that, again, I have spent a good part of my career working on that stuff at the federal level. Um, and we've gotten very involved in, in, in restorative justice, the, the real kind, not the, not the talking point kind that, that some uh, blue state mayors have have embraced um but again we don't we don't need the president to decide to do this we don't need congress to act you might not even need um a governor or a state legislature to act this is something that people could focus on reforming from the bottom up uh talk about the uh either the missoula experience or what's going on in montana well, so um, th- this is, I guess, kind of specific to Missoula, but also it- it's across the entire country and all these cities and these municipalities where the number one, I think, issue within criminal justice reform is is how many interactions people have with police and how many different laws and regulations and codes are on the books that can spur the state coming in with a police force, holding a gun to your head and making you comply. Because I'm sure you've heard this many times before, but the end of every law is a guy with a gun. I mean, there's no yeah. question about it. Um, in Missoula, we have a... Um, a, a it's essentially a, a dog uh, license that you have to get. If you own a dog within the, the county limits, you have to pay $120 a year to have a dog. And unfortunately, that people think, oh, okay. Yeah, this well, is in Montana. Yeah, this is in Montana. You, you have to pay 120 bucks a year I, I to was, own a dog. I was told that you guys had a real libertarian streak in you. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, people would think so, but um, they, they say Missoula. Missoula is kind of a blue dot in the middle of red states. We're kind of like Austin, Texas. We were dubiously nicknamed the Kremlin on the Clark Fork, uh, the People's Republic of Missoula. Um, all accurate, um, of course, but um, you'd be surprised. There's there's a lot of red towns that, that have these similar type um, laws and regulations and restrictions. So we have this $120 a year dog license um, in Missoula, and that opens up the door for the government to, if, if they're knocking on your door for any reason and they hear a dog, they can look up your information and see whether or not you have a license with the county. They can fine you if you don't appear in court. If you don't pay the fine, they can jail you. They can arrest you. 
and you have to pay all these legal fees, various other types of, of issues, and this opens up the door for re retaliation, for retribution. If you go against a, a mayor, a council member, they can use these laws against you and really just not, not indoctrinate you, capture you into the whole system, the yeah, revolving yeah. door of the criminal justice system. Um, so I'll leave it at that for is now. It, is, it, is it sort of like, I mean, that, that all sounds so ridiculous. Is this just a backdoor way of taxing people? Is, are they just extracting money out of people without, you know, quote, raising taxes? Yes, 100%. That is, that is what they're doing. This is a, a sneaky way. It's a hidden tax. And there are so many in, in these different cities. So let me give you an example. So Missoula has a budget of about $240 million a year. And of that $240 million, only about $42 million of it comes from property taxes. So the rest of it comes from fines, fees, surcharges, permits, parking, all these various other things. And granted, we do have some enterprise funds in there. So the city now um, owns the water company, which they actually stole through eminent domain from the Carlisle Group um, back in, I believe, 2015. But all those different fees um, and, and monthly charges go into that budget of about $240 million. But it just exemplifies the fact that the, the government doesn't get all of its revenue from property taxes. It gets it from all kinds of different things, sneaky ways to tax people. So what's, um, what, what could you do at the local level when it comes to policing? Because there's, it's, you know, it's, in a lot of ways, it's going to be just like the teachers union where administration and all of these, these shiny new programs and, and you know, the, the one thing the feds are doing that I've noticed is, is sending a lot of these um, uh, weapons of war to, to local police departments. And I, f I find that just super creepy. Well, I, I'm smiling only because of the ridiculousness of this situation. Um, so in Missoula, this was back in, I believe, um, early 2020. So it was right around the COVID. I believe it was right before COVID happened. Um, there was actually a gentleman, believe it or not, who he, he blew the whistle on an unconstitutional drone strike program uh, back in 2014. His name is Brandon Bryant. Uh, he spoke to the United Nations. He spoke... Um, from Fox News to MSNBC, spoke all over. He, he was very well decorated. Uh, he was speaking at city council meetings, and he um, uh, unfortunately said some of the wrong things on his YouTube page. Um, there were some videos that this man, he's, he has PTSD. Uh, he's a little troubled from it, um, and he posted a video, which I don't agree with. Um, obviously, it was, it was very incendiary. Uh, but it was nothing criminal. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was barred from city council meetings, but then he was actually arrested um, by by the local police department. He was thrown in jail for about, I think, a month and a half. He was held at $100,000 of bail. And I actually testified uh, for the defense during his, his meeting, or during his hearing, and believe it or not, they were showing images of him speaking, videos of him speaking at city council um, as as evidence that the, the prosecution was showing his public speech during a public city council meeting to try and charge him with a felony of intimidating and threatening elected officials. He was actually acquitted um, of all charges uh, in, I think, an hour from a jury of his peers. But that's how close he was. He was offered a deal. He yeah. refused the deal, which is very brave because um, he could have pled down to a misdemeanor 
And if that was the case, um, he was essentially going to be fined. He wouldn't have have time served. But if he was convicted by that jury, the way that they kind of boxed him in and, and showed him this, um, this option, he would have lost all of his veterans' benefits. He would have been imprisoned, and he would have had to pay a fine up to $250,000. So that's one example of how they really... Um, that, that, that's how they really... They use the system to yep, intimidate people. They use yeah. the system to intimidate people. But this is kind of the prelude to a, a different part of the story where he was arrested and then two days later um, a cop's window was broken out of their car. And I kid you not, the entire city, I was in city council meetings at the time, um, it was locked down. And there were snipers on the rooftops of Missoula. There were armored vehicles. There were tanks. It, it, it looked like a, an actual war zone. Come to find out later um, that the window was not shot out. It was actually, they believe, a rock um, that, that bounced up on it. And they actually even think, because it was very cold out, that it was just the defroster that malfunctioned a little bit and broke out the window. Hmm. But it just goes to show that these police forces, even in small little Missoula, Montana, 72,000 people, we had an actual army on the courthouse with on the court on top of the courthouse with sniper rifles with night vision goggles yeah. fully armored the whole nine yards it, so if you go to city council and complain about this stuff <laughs> you're you're going to get arrested yeah that's that is and whether or not that's that's true in the eyes of the mayor, that is the sense that everybody had in yeah. the, the council meetings and in the public is, okay, if we go, there's going to be retaliation, there's going to be retribution, there's going to be somebody knocking on my door listening to hear if I have a dog that I didn't pay my license for, so they have an excuse to throw me in jail if I don't pay this $120 fine. Yeah. Uh, another issue that, that we were talking about is transportation and and. And here in D.C., you know, um, happily, the, the so-called Build Back Better um, effort by the Biden administration to spend, I, I don't even know how many trillions that one was, because we just, we just throw trillions around like it's nothing here. But people forget that, that roads are a local and state responsibility, and that um, to the extent that there's federal money, it's always with strings attached, and it's always politically motivated, and it's always rewarding people who play ball and people who happen to be with this party when this party's in power or that party. Um, but it's super corrupt at the local level. Oh, 100%. And, and in a lot of, lot of cases, what, what I was talking to you about and talking to other people, the other advocates at the federal level that try and institute these policies top down, the federal government essentially allows the local governments to abdicate any responsibility for these things. So as I told you before, budget of Missoula is about $240 million. We spent a total of $6 million of that on roads. Yeah. So everybody thinks, okay, police, fire, infrastructure, we can all agree that those are rules of government for the most part, uh, at least in our modern sense of the, of the term government. Uh, but we're only spending $6 million out of about a quarter billion dollar budget on infrastructure. And then meanwhile, the city can claim that they're broke, they don't have any money, well, the state needs to help me, we need to tax the, the state citizens, okay, the state doesn't have enough money, we need to tax the entire country to get this money that they have, they have at the local money at the local level. Um, I've always said that the, the local government, at least in Missoula, and this is true across the country, they do not have a spending problem, they do not have a revenue problem, they have a spending problem. Yeah. So they have plenty of money, again, 
quarter billion dollars and they're giving out corporate welfare they're doing these different programs these these different um, local welfare programs so they have more than enough money to do it and then the Joe Biden administration whoever it is comes in with this big big infrastructure bill that has about 20 percent dedicated to roads and bridges and then the local governments are feel can feel free to use that money oftentimes to strip their citizens of of their rights because they're able to to use the majority of the money they collect at the local level for pet projects for social change social engineering uh, various different things that doesn't actually improve the lives of their citizens so what was the biggest fight that you had um, uh, actually let's 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 talk about two fights the one that you won and the one that you got crushed on yeah so um, so the one that I won uh, we're talking about the the tobacco issue. Mm-hmm. So the one on that, that was really interesting. People, uh, again, think that this happens at the federal level, and sometimes it does, but um, the city council um, was considering a bill to ban all flavored tobacco products, whether that is menthol cigarettes, whether that's Zin or nicotine pouches, whether that's um, wintergreen uh, Copenhagen, which is very popular in Montana, um, banning all of that because apparently big tobacco is targeting kids with those products. Um, so they tried to do a, a local government push to get that done, and I, I was able to successfully work with the mayor and, and some council members to say, okay, this is absolutely not going to happen. This is a complete infringement on liberty, and this is, again, another example of how you can encourage more interactions with police. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so we were able to get that reduced down to just a ban on um, vape, which again was absolutely absurd so they were banning all flavored vapes um all vapor, all flavored vape juices shops everything where these people there was probably i think six or seven vape shops in missoula um where people put their hard-earned money they their life savings sometimes into developing these businesses employing people uh giving adults a, an alternative to smoking mm-hmm. um they got that passed they got it killed uh, in the state legislature about two months later. So now, um, as so much of the policy in, in Montana is, um, Missoula kind of sets the tone now for the state legislature where now no municipality is allowed to touch any sort of um, flavored or otherwise tobacco products that's more stringent than state law. Hmm. So it's kind of a Petri dish for yes. stupid ideas. Very much a Petri dish for, for stupid ideas. Yeah. Um, Tax increment financing probably being the the next one that we'll talk about, um, something that the legislature is looking at at tightening down. Well, well, go ahead. So tax increment financing for your for your viewers that um, don't know what it is, um, it is probably the largest corporate welfare giveaway scheme uh, in the entire country. Um, and it happens in most municipalities all across the, the United States. Um, it was happening majorly in California, and uh, Moonbeam actually had to kill the program um, because it was bankrupting the entire state. So what it is... Governor, Governor Moonbeam. Yes, yes, Governor Moonbeam. Uh, Jerry Brown, I, yeah. I think, is is his uh, proper name, but yeah. I like to call him Moonbeam. Uh, in any event, he had to shut it down. As, as liberal as, as he is, I think there were 600 renewal districts in his state. So what it is, for your viewers that, that don't know, and maybe it's helpful to, to learn a little bit about how the property tax system actually works, um, because they'll talk about mills, they'll talk about mill levies, they'll be like, I need a two mill uh, increase on my house, and people don't actually know what that is. 
So it's just a sneaky type of government currency to avoid them having to say that we're going to raise your taxes by X number of cents, X number of dollars, X number of thousands of dollars on your home. So in Montana, at least, how it's set up is you take the market value of your home, which is determined by a computer system in, in Montana, and you take the value of your home, let's just say it's $100,000, and you take that and you multiply it by 1.39%. And whatever that is, that number is, um, you divide that by a thousand. So whatever the, the percentage is that you multiply it in in your state, just take the value of your home, multiply it by that percentage set by the state, and that gives you your taxable value. From that point on, you divide the taxable value by a thousand, and that gets you a mill. So mill means one one thousandth. So then the mayor, the county, the schools, they charge you in mills to live in your own home. So if the mayor in D.C. charges you 250 mills, you just have to calculate what the value of the mill is worth on your home to determine how much he's actually charging you to live in your own city, in your own house. And typically there's three major taxing jurisdictions within a local government. There's the city, the county, and the schools. And there's a little sneaky something called tax increment financing. Um, and what it is, is it's part of the urban renewal scheme. So it allows local governments, as they would say, it gives them the tool to encourage development to happen in a specific part of town, a specific geographic area. So they take your property taxes, and let's just say you're paying, um, uh, we'll say you're paying $1,000 a year. I don't know what city that is, but I want to move there because 1000 bucks a year is nice. But yeah. you take that 1000 bucks a year, and if you're in a renewable urban renewal district, you freeze the tax base. So only $1,000 will continue to go into the general funds of the police, the fire, the infrastructure, the stuff that you care about for the, for the life of the district. And so that district will, obviously, your house will continue to grow in, in taxes because they'll levy more mills, the value of your home will appreciate, um, there's new development, new construction, all these different things that add to that general pot. So let's just say after 20 years, you're paying $3,000 a year in property taxes. So of that $3,000, only 2000 bucks a year of that $3,000 is actually going to um, give to corporate welfare giveaway schemes. It's going to something called an urban renewal district um, and a redevelopment agency that's controlled typically by an unelected board of bureaucrats that are all appointed by the mayor. So in Missoula, for example... We have districts that on average last about 40 years, and we have one district in particular that is one square mile. It is absolutely massive, and they have not been paying a nickel more in property taxes to the general funds of the county, the city, and the schools since the year 2000. So all they're still paying the same taxes that, that people that live outside the district are paying, but the difference is if they look on their property tax bill, they'll actually see a special levy where a vast majority of their property taxes are actually going to pay for improvements to the mall or pay for a new bank or pay for a movie theater or pay for a new grocery store. And a lot of this happens in deep blue cities where they talk about corporations are evil, corporations are bad, but they're giving millions of dollars away in most cities to these private corporations who, oh, by the way, just happen to donate to the mayor or the city council or the county commissioners. Yeah, yeah, it's the it's a cycle of corruption. A whole cycle of corruption. Yeah. Um, so that in and speaking of sort of like in, entrenched interests that that are hard to break. Um, I feel like we're going to go back again and again and again 
the, that, that insanely complex system you just described. Yep. The only way to fix it is for people to show up and get engaged. And that, of, that of course, is, is what you're doing now. You're organizing people. Um, and, you know, in, instead of obsessing about who the next president of the United States will be, how would people actually get involved at the local level? You know, if, if you want to be a citizen, you want to run for something, whatever that is, what, what, are, what, are, the, what are the opportunities and what are the tools? Yeah, so I think the biggest opportunity for most folks is to, um, if they're like me, they don't know who these folks are. I would say the, the biggest thing, the, the first step in the right direction is to find out who these elected officials are and find out what they're voting on, what issues that they're trying to decide on. Are they voting to give $2 million to the Marriott hotel chain because that happened in Missoula? Are they voting to give um, $2 million to a large bank? That happened in Missoula. Are they voting uh, to limit the schools? Are uh, the attendance in schools or are they voting to lock down the, the different businesses because that's what they do in these these different cities so that's the first step is to get involved and learn who represents you and what their voting record is the second step I mean I was some punk 26 year old I had no idea what I was doing um, I just jumped into the race and you'll be surprised at, at how much your community will support you because that I was shocked by that. that Are I, these nonpartisan races? Typically, typically? they're non nonpartisan. Uh, in Missoula County, uh, the sheriff's race is partisan, but the city council and the mayor's race is nonpartisan. Even though everybody typically knows where they line up on the scale, but they are nonpartisan. So um, you might not have help with your your local party if you're Republican, Libertarian, Democrat. You probably won't have help from your local party because they're focused on, on the national or state level uh, politics. But that's what I would say first is, is find out who it is, find out what their, their issues are, and then find out when the next election is. And my advice to, to viewers is be brave. Like, put yourself out there, throw your name in the hat, even if you don't think you're qualified. You'd be amazed at the people serving right now, how completely, I, I was kind of more of a Trump-style Republican when I got elected to uh, city council, and then after serving with these folks for about a month, I had no confidence in government whatsoever. The, the level of incompetence that I experienced actually serving in a government um, that thinks that they can tell people how to live their lives better than they can was just absolutely unbelievable. So I, I think that for the most part, the folks that show up are just rubber stamps. Um, people, and you'd be also shocked how many of these races are won unopposed. Um, in Missoula, a vast majority of them were all unopposed. People ran for these, these far-left Democrats, and they just were automatically shoe-in. They didn't have to uh, compete for ideas. They didn't have to, to prove that they were the better candidate, that they were the smarter candidate, that they would help the people more. They just automatically got shooed in. So my advice to folks is even if you think that you're not going to win your first time, um, the the citizens of your town need you. They they need these competing ideas. And, and I've fell victim to this in, in Missoula where I recruited some folks in the midterm race and thought that we would all win. I was naive enough to think that we would all win. We won two out of five races, which was great. But what I was shocked about is the races that we lost are just as important as the races that you win because people for the longest time in Missoula have thought there's only one way of doing things mm -hmm. because each campaign spends money typically on mailers, on radio ads, on radio appearances, television appearances, newspaper appearances so that people can understand that there is another way of doing things. I was fortunate enough to get elected um, 
the best politician uh, in Missoula uh, with a peer of 17,000 or with a group of 17,000 of my fellow Missoulians um, in a very liberal town because I was giving people an alternative, um, giving people the, the other side of the coin. And they really, really appreciated that. And that's what I think is so important. If you want to change the, the federal government, the state government, it all has to start from the bottom up. Yeah, yeah. And not only do the issues have to start at the bottom up, but the politicians starting at the bottom up, if we get good people in local offices, then it just sets you up to, to make maybe more of an impact on the state level. Or if you have, um, if you're a little bit crazy or touched in the head and you want to run for a federal race, um, it sets you up better to do that as well. It, it really helps you um, get a good track record, um, gets kind of an understanding the inner workings of the system and make a real and lasting impact on the citizens of your community. So the uh, the th- the thing that I have always focused on is 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 more grassroots accountability. But you can't actually have a voice at a city council meeting or a school board meeting if the people that you're talking to have no political competition. Yeah. And so it it's it, it they kind of go together. Where um, um, I'm I'm thinking of uh, of Thomas Massey. He he got his start um, by by writing um, like open letters to his local government. And he became sort of a local folk hero for the guy that would actually speak truth to power. And then the community sort of drafted him to run for a local position and that eventually became a congressional opinion. But it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. Like you, you can't run for office without a, a constituency of people that, that actually support what you're trying to do. So, so for a lot of people, maybe it's just showing up you know, yep. And and like I wonder what your experience was um, at a city council meeting. Do do people show up? Yeah. So they they weren't showing up before I was on council, and then um, in my first year on council, the city was raising taxes by three point six percent, and I was actually working with Americans for Prosperity, um, not working for them, but working with them, uh, and we were able to get about two hundred and fifty people into the the council chambers that night. It was the largest attendance in the history of council meetings. And the vote was 11 to 1. I was the only person that voted against it, but um, we ended up keeping them there till 3.30 in the morning. Um, so I, I told people, like, hey, okay, if, if, um, if they're going to do this, we might as well make our voice heard and might as well annoy them a little bit and keep them up um, so they know that we're here, we're paying attention, we're frustrated. Um, and at the end of the day, um, it didn't change anything, but they knew that people were paying attention and they started choosing their words more carefully. They started choosing the, the legislation. I think that they carried it with a little bit more caution than they ordinarily would have. Um, and talking about tax increment financing, although I wasn't able to make any strides towards that on, on the legislative level at the local level, um, I was able to um, get, in, get in with the media and let people know um, across both sides of the aisle what was happening with this corporate welfare. And actually, my biggest accomplishment is that after I got off council, the MRA, which is all funded by tax increment financing dollars, had to hire a communication specialist um, to kind of reframe and, and deceive the taxpayers and to make them think that it's no longer corporate welfare, that it's all for the good of, That's of the funny, community. That's communication specialist. Nothing pisses me off more than looking at our tax dollars going to um, propaganda to convince us that what they're doing is okay, even though we know it's not okay. 
I couldn't agree with you more. I, I always got frustrated with our communications director at the city because she's paid by the taxpayers to deceive the taxpayers. Yeah. And yeah. then the city actually even had its own lobbyist in Helena, so they had a lobbyist that was paid for by the taxpayers to strip the rights away from the taxpayers in Helena. Yeah, well, that's that's government in a nutshell. Yes. So, so if uh, if people want to find you or or Americans for Prosperity either in Montana or nationally, where do they go? Yeah, so um, I'm on, on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, Jesse Ramos MT, um, and then AFP. So just go to americansforprosperity.org um, to, to really get involved. So Americans for Prosperity really works around the grassroots um, movement. We, we want to get people engaged, um, social entrepreneurs, people that want to see a change. We want to get them engaged, involved on, on local, state, and federal issues so that they can actually have their voice be heard. We want them to know that they are not alone, that they can come to us. Even if we don't agree on every issue with them, uh, we want to work with them and partner with them and give them the resources and the training that they need to make an impact on an issue that we both agree on. And I know that there are, are plenty of them. And AFP is right now in 36 states. Uh, we're all over the all over the United States right now. And uh, we're ready. We're, we want to work with folks. We've, we've gotten a lot of things passed um, all throughout the states. We're working particularly closely on, on education reform, on criminal justice reform, um, and stuff that, that if your local municipality, if you feel like it's too far gone uh, and you're in a red state, there are some things that, that the state government can do to help restore liberty and give freedom back to the, the individual citizens of that municipality, particularly around criminal justice reform um, and uh, taxes, economics, um, and various other rights that have been stripped away slowly and methodically by your local governments. So Free the People just did a collaboration with Americans for Prosperity in New Mexico with my friend Burley Kane, and, and that one was on restorative justice and criminal justice reform. And, and I'm hoping we, we actually we had a tremendous crowd in Albuquerque, and I'm hoping that we got something started again, bottom-up, uh, combination grassroots and just people that, that, that wanted to make a difference. So um, I, I, I having been on the ground, I can tell you that the combination of a, of a good idea, a good story, and a grassroots army is, is unstoppable. Yeah, it's completely unstoppable. And, and around criminal justice reform, just to, just to circle back on that, because I think it's so important to both of us, um, is that people always, whenever a horrific thing happens, like George Floyd or um, any number of, of these high-profile uh, police wrongdoings, the last people to get blamed are the people that actually have control and responsibility over the police force. So they'll blame the world, they'll blame uh, the country for being systemically racist, but they won't blame the police unions, they won't blame the police chief, and they certainly won't blame the mayor. What people have to realize is that the mayor is essentially the commander-in-chief for the police force. So that's the amount of power that these local officials have over your life. They can shut down your business, they can have you arrested, they can raise your taxes, they can uh, create laws and regulations that you have to abide by or else you'll get arrested you'll lose your house they have the power to take your home at the local level and that's what's kind of on the table at, at this point is that if we don't get the local government under control it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what we do at the federal level the local government is so much more tied into the culture and the cultural impact of things because that's where most of the ideas are exchanged is with your neighbors down the street and if you don't have competing ideas and a competition of ideas within local government races, you're never going to be able to change the nation. Bottom up, not top down. Yep, correct. Bottom up, not top down. Thank you, sir. Yes, thank you very much for your time. 
Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed that show, make sure that you like and subscribe. Click the little bell so that you get notifications. And if you consume this via podcast, go wherever you want to go. We're everywhere. Kibbe on Liberty, the revolution starts now.